Well, good morning. Welcome to Evergreen SGV. My name is Pastor Victor. I'm the outreach pastor here. And this morning, I wanted to begin with the reading of God's word from John chapter 13, verses 12 through 20. So if you're able, would you please rise for the reading of God's word? John chapter 13, beginning with verse 12, ending with verse 20. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take my place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I thank you for your word. Your word is truth. And I pray that you would speak now your truth into our hearts and your light would shine bright in our hearts that we might see your glory in the face of Christ, we ask and pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may have a seat. <clears throat> Every night... When I put my children down, okay, my children are ages four, six, and nine. Every night when I put my children down, after we have done family worship, okay, my children have recently requested that I, that I share a set of stories with them, that I tell them a set of stories. Now these stories are not from a children's classic, and they're not from the children's Bible. We had just read that. These stories are not from the latest bestseller. The stories that my children ask me to tell them each night as they lay in bed are stories from my childhood. Now, isn't that interesting? My children want to hear stories of my childhood. And me being the age that I am, I have to look back 25 plus years, go back to when I was a child, and recreate, retell, recount these stories of when I grew up. And what's interesting is as I look back on my childhood and I think of stories to tell my children growing up, the memories that come to mind are those associated with very strong emotion. Whether it's uh, just very strong sadness and pain, or it's very strong joy and much laughter. 
And what I find interesting, as I tell these stories, I share the emotion behind it, and I realize that just showing them a home video would not communicate any emotion. And I realize that as I tell these stories of my childhood with emotions and all the feelings that I felt, I'm actually inviting my children to enter the story with me, to experience what it was like to be me growing up. And the interesting thing is that my children asked to hear these stories, these same stories over and over and over again. And that's the very unique thing about the Gospel of John. Why? Because the Gospel of John is unique from the other Gospels. Why is that? Because this is a disciple John looking back 50-some years to when Jesus walked with him. And he's recreating the scenes. He's retelling the story. He's recounting and he's attaching all the emotion and feeling he experienced. He's inviting people to come experience what it was like to walk with Jesus. What was it like to walk with Jesus? What were those final moments with Jesus like? When did you know that he was the son of God? When did you know that he was about to die? You can imagine John fielding these questions from people over the years to the point where he writes the Gospel of John. His recollections of his time with Jesus, specific recollections tied with emotion, tied with feeling, tied with themes that he saw. He's looking back 50 years and he's inviting us in. This morning, we're looking at the disciples' final moments with Jesus that last night, the night of Jesus' betrayal. Last week, Pastor Dan preached on Jesus washing the feet of his disciples, and he noted that it was a downward trend. Remember that? You have the God of the entire universe, coming down as a man, disrobing his outer garments, washing the feet of his disciples. That was a role only reserved for slaves. He was going down, Jesus was. And we come now to the hour of his betrayal. And it's interesting, remember this is John looking back some 50 years later, what would John feel looking back? Would he feel regret? Would he wonder, if I had just said this, or if I had just done this, maybe things could have been different. But what's interesting is, John looks back on this moment, this key moment, and he discovers this. Jesus met his betrayal with love alone. Jesus met his betrayal with love alone. So let's turn with me to John chapter 13, verse 21, and let's see how this all unfolds, okay? John chapter 13, verse 21. 
And we'll start here. Jesus met his betrayal, meaning Jesus met his betrayal head on, meaning Jesus met his betrayal face to face. He met it willingly. Let's look at verse 21. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. Now, just as I had read with the scripture reading early on, Jesus had just washed the feet of his disciples. And he goes on in verse 18 to quote from Psalm 41, verse 9, saying, The scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. He's announcing his impending betrayal. And Jesus says he's doing this so that when it takes place, verse 19, you may believe that I am he, so that when the disciples look back on this moment, they would realize that Jesus knew what was going on. He was in control. This was all according to his plan. Verse 21, after saying these things, it's interesting. John's looking back here, and he writes, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. That means that when John looks back on that moment, he remembers that he looked at the face of Jesus, and Jesus was visibly troubled. He was distraught. He was in anguish. Everybody could tell. Now, I want to just sit with this. Jesus was troubled in his spirit. Why? Because Jesus is not some emotionless, stoic God like that we find in other religions. Jesus felt. He felt deep emotion. Here, he was troubled in his spirit. Now, why was Jesus troubled in his spirit? Was it because he was about to be betrayed? Well, no, later on we see that Jesus met his arrest, his torture, he was questioned by Pilate, he was crucified on the cross, he met it with composure. Jesus was not troubled because of his impending betrayal. I believe Jesus was troubled in his spirit. He was visibly distraught. John remembers looking on Jesus' face and seeing him so troubled. Why? Because Jesus knows that his betrayal would set into action a course of events that would end with him hanging on the cross, bearing the sin of the world, the wrath of the Father, the separation from God the Father from the curse of sin. The hour had come and Jesus was troubled in his spirit. He goes on in verse 21 and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Now, if this was a movie, this would be part of the movie where you would hear the record scratch, eep, and there'd be awkward silence, stunned silence. Why? Because Jesus had just washed the feet of his disciples, a very intimate, very close and personal act by doing so. He's saying, you are so close to me, you are so dear to me, you are my beloved. And then here he drops the bomb, boom, 
and one of you will betray me. And the disciples are stunned, silent. You could hear a pin drop. What? What are you talking about? Again, Jesus had just done this unspeakable act of love. He brought his disciples in so close by taking the form of a servant, a slave, and washing their feet. And then he says, one of you will betray me. Wow. I mean, think about it. What God would put himself through that? What God would choose to walk willingly into betrayal? What God would do that? And here, Jesus declares, one of you will betray me. One of my close friends will betray me. Jesus met his betrayal. A lot of times when I think about betrayal, I think about being caught off guard, right? I think, I think about being taken by surprise. There's this phrase that we use, being stabbed in the back. And that means you're just walking, going about your business, and ah, et tu brutas, ah, right? That's what we think about betrayal. We think, being, we think about being caught off guard, being caught by surprise, and yet here, that's what's so unusual. Jesus is not caught off guard. Jesus is not caught by surprise. He walked right into his betrayal. It wasn't like he was being stabbed in the back. He was being stabbed in the front, and he walked, and he went like that. Who would do that? Who would do that? Again, let's trace this downward trajectory. The God of the entire universe comes in the form of a man, disrobes his outer garments, washes the feet of his disciples, being betrayed by one of his closest friends. Can you get any lower than that? And here yet, Jesus walks into his betrayal willingly. He meets it head on. Now, I just want to share that all around the world, right at this moment, there are followers of Christ being betrayed, being handed over by their friends, families, and neighbors to be imprisoned, to be tortured, to be killed. And I share that just to note that what happened here is still happening among Jesus' followers even today. And yet, even then, they do not walk willingly, they do not walk knowingly into betrayal. I think about us here today, San Gabriel Valley, Southern California. We may not experience that level of betrayal, but we can all identify with feeling betrayed. And maybe it's somebody at work shooting over our head, complaining to our boss about us. We feel betrayed. Or maybe it's being passed over for a promotion by somebody you trained. We feel betrayed. Or maybe it's discovering that your significant other is seeing somebody else. We feel betrayed. 
And the closer the relationship, the deeper the hurt, the deeper the betrayal. Imagine a spouse who discovers that her husband is cheating on her. Imagine that betrayal. And for all those situations, feeling betrayed, we would never move toward the person who betrays us. And yet what we see here, actually, is that Jesus meets his betrayal with love. He moves towards his betrayal with compassion. He meets his betrayal with love. Let's look at verse 23. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Verse 27, then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now the arrangement, the seating arrangement here at the Last Supper, contrary to Leonardo da Vinci, it's not one long table. It was a U-shape. It was a U-shape, and every person would have their head facing the table, That they were reclining meant that it was a very important meal. It was the meal of the Passover. So every person would be reclining. Let's say this was the table here. They would lean on their left side, okay, and then their head would face the table. They would free up their right hand to take the food. Now, they would recline in such a way that if a person was, let's say there's a person right here, a person could recline against the other person, the chest of the person. That's why in verse 22, verse 23, it says one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Who is this talking about? This is talking about the disciple John, the author of this gospel. Now this is very interesting. Here's the first instance where John calls himself the disciple, one of the disciples whom Jesus loved. And I always thought this was interesting. I thought this was kind of arrogant for John to write. Why would would John refer to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved? But as I studied this more, I realized that this was not mentioned out of arrogance, but of humility. You see, the disciple John was so overcome. He looks back some 50 years later And he is so overwhelmed and overcome by the love of Jesus that he chooses not to be named by name. He chooses to be named as one of the disciples who received the grace and love of Jesus. That's pretty cool, huh? That's pretty remarkable. So it says in verse 23, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved, that was the disciple John, was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. Now this phrase, at Jesus' side, literally means in the bosom of Jesus, in the chest of Jesus. It's used in John chapter 1, verse 18, 
it says the Son of God, Jesus, the Word of God, was in the bosom of the Father. And so John is saying that he was so close to Jesus, he likened his relationship to Jesus and the Father. He was that close. Here at the Last Supper, again, the arrangement was U-shaped, that John was able to recline against the chest of Jesus meant that he was sitting on the right of Jesus, okay? So he could recline, okay? Now Peter, Simon Peter, was not so close to Jesus. He was probably across from John. And usually Simon Peter in the Gospels, he's the first to say something, first to blurt out something. But isn't it interesting here, Simon Peter is so stunned by Jesus' announcement, one of you will betray me, that Simon Peter can't even say anything. What he does is he motions to John, hey, you go. I don't know if he gives him a nod of the head or he gives him a motion of, of his hand, but it says Simon Peter motioned to him, speaking of John, to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. And in verse 25, again, remember the arrangement John is sitting at the right side of Jesus. He's reclining, he's leaning on his left side. And so John is able to lean all the way back against the chest of Jesus, look up into the face of Jesus and ask, Lord, who is it? And it's interesting here in verse 26, Jesus answered, it is he to whom I give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. What's interesting here is that the host of this great meal would take a piece of meat or a piece of bread and dip it into a common bowl. And he would offer it as a gesture of honor, of friendship, and love. So I want you to, I want you to get this, okay? John asked, who of one of us, who of your closest friends is going to betray you? And Jesus says, it is the one that I am going to extend this show of honor to, this show of love to. It's amazing. Jesus met his betrayal with love. He indicated and identified who his betrayer was with a show of love. And the crazier thing, okay, the crazier thing is that according to the seating arrangement, that Jesus was able to dip the piece of bread and offer it to Judas. Remember, John is here on his right side. The only way he could do that and offer it to Judas is if Judas was sitting on his left side which was a seat of honor. So Jesus intentionally sits Judas, who will betray him, in the seat of honor. And he extends a show of honor and love to Judas. Wow. It's crazy. Like, what kind of love is this? Jesus meets his betrayal with love. And he extends that love to Judas all the way. 
Let's go on. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Now, verse 26, this is all happening without any words. Remember, this is John looking back on this moment some 50 years later. I can imagine it being for John so clear, clear as day. I can imagine John recreating that moment in slow motion. Jesus dipped the morsel. He gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Now this phrase, Satan entered into him, in verse 27, it speaks of thorough possession. Now I don't know if any of you in our church family watch scary movies. You probably shouldn't. But I find this to be very scary here. This means that Satan possessed Judas. He took over. That's scary. And this was a key pivotal moment. You can imagine John, he's saying that was when it all turned. Satan took over, meaning that Judas was going to do what he wanted to do, when he wanted to do. He was acting according to Satan. And here in verse 27, Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. And it's very interesting to note here that Jesus ends with a command to Judas. What you are going to do, do quickly. And commentators say Jesus ends with a command to Judas to prove that he was in control. He was not taken by surprise. He was not taken off guard. He was in control. And it reminds us of John chapter 10 when Jesus says, no one can take my life from me. I lay it willingly down. Jesus is in control. He knows what's going on, and he meets his betrayal with love. You know, when I think about any situation where we would willingly walk into betrayal, when I think about what, what, what situation would we willingly walk into betrayal with full knowledge? Now maybe it's because I watch too many movies, but I imagine walking right into a trap, walking right into betrayal as a part of an undercover sting operation. Right? You're about to meet your betrayer, and all of a sudden, the police come out from the shadows and they say, put your hands up. And then you point to your betrayer and you say, aha, I got you. Right? That's the only situation I can imagine, wanting to catch the person in the act, wanting to shame them, wanting to expose them, wanting to humiliate them, wanting to punish them, wanting to take it out on them with vengeance. Oh, you're going to betray me? Oh, we're going to see what's up. But I would never, never walk willingly into betrayal with love. Who would do that? Who would do that? Our hearts are one of vengeance. We want to expose, we want to shame, we want to humiliate. And yet Jesus wasn't out to shame Judas. He wasn't out to humiliate him. 
he was here to extend love all the way through. What kind of love is this? What kind of man is this? The crazy thing, this crazy love, Jesus met his betrayal with love. But to even go further down, okay? God of the universe, come as man, disrobes himself to wash the feet of his best friends, betrayed by one of his best friends. If you want to go down even further, Jesus met his betrayal with love alone. He did this all by himself. Nobody else had any idea. Let's look at verse 28. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. We see here in verse 28, no one had any idea. Uh, Jesus had already shared someone will betray me. He announces, one of you will betray me. And still, the disciples had no idea. And what this tells me is that Judas, they had no suspicion of him. Now, when I think of Judas, maybe you're like me, okay? When I think about Judas, I think about a fox in a cartoon, an evil, scheming fox with eyebrows pointed in and little devil horns come out, <laughs> right? I mean, even if we think about Leonardo da Vinci, how he portrayed Judas was very distinct from how he portrayed John. Judas looked shady. John looked angelic. But the truth is, nobody had any idea. So that meant that Judas looked no different than any of the disciples. He did not have devil horns pointing out. He did not look like some shady character. If anything, Judas was sitting in the seat of honor. Disciples, they thought nothing of it. Isn't that interesting? Right? I mean, the disciples even come up with their own theories. Some thought that Verse 29, Judas had the money bag. He was a treasurer. Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, meaning buy what we need for the feast of unleavened bread. Well, that, that's possible. Or that he should give something to the poor. You see, on the night of the Passover, that night, it was common for people to give alms to the poor. So maybe that's what Judas was doing. You see, the disciples were coming up with their own theories. Why? Because it was so far from their mind that Judas would do anything like that. That any of them would ever betray Jesus. I mean, even think about John. As I was studying this, I was like, well, John, you were right there. You were leaning up against the chest of Jesus. You were looking into his face. Jesus pointed Judas out. Why didn't you do anything, John? And the only explanation I can come up with is that John didn't do anything because Jesus didn't do anything. 
And so John must have thought, maybe I heard wrong, you know, maybe my ears are wrong, or maybe Jesus is speaking in, you know, his parables or riddles like he does, or, or maybe it's some of us will unintentionally betray him as if that's possible. And isn't it interesting in verse 30, remember I, I said that what Jesus did to Judas was offer an, an act, a gesture of honor, of friendship, and of love. Commentators believe that what Jesus was doing at that moment was offering Judas one last chance, one last chance at friendship and love. Come in, Judas. And yet, as commentator D.A. Carson writes, Judas took the bread, yet not the love. He took the bread, and he went away. And in verse 30, I think this is so neat, right? At the end, it says, and it was night. Again, this is John looking back 50 years later. He's setting the scene, and what he says, it, it was night. Meaning that Judas left in the darkness of night, in darkness of sin. Judas walked away from the light of the world and went into darkness. But what this also meant was that the light of the world, Jesus, would now have to face night, darkness, the darkness of sin. Again, when we think about betrayal, and we think about feeling betrayed, already we feel isolated. I mean, think about it, when we feel betrayed, we already feel alone. We're confused, we're hurt, we're frustrated, we're angry. Betrayal already makes us feel alone. Now imagine going through it all by yourself. Right, I think when we go through betrayal, we always think of somebody we can talk to that can vouch for us. Somebody, a friend or a family member who said, man, that stinks. Or how could they do that to you? But imagine going through betrayal all by yourself. Imagine Jesus. Again, imagine you're assigned to write a paper from your teacher, right? And your friend is bugging you because she needs help. And so you share some pointers with your friend. And what ends up happening is that your friend writes a paper that sounds exactly like yours. And so the teacher comes, calls both of you forward, and your friend turns to the teacher and says, she copied me. And guess what? The teacher believes her. Imagine feeling betrayed alone. Or imagine being at work and you're assigned to train up a coworker, okay? So you train this person up, you actually grow pretty close to him. And a promotion comes up and you get passed over for the person you trained. 
And you find out later that it's because this person you trained went to management and said, he didn't teach me anything. I learned it all on my own. Imagine feeling betrayed, alone. Or imagine discovering that your spouse has been cheating on you. And when your, your husband finds out, he turns around and serves you papers to get divorced. And he spins it in such a way saying that you never cared for me, you were never there for me, you never loved me. And when your family finds out, they blame you because they liked him. Imagine going through that betrayal and the cold reality that nobody believes that you were the one being betrayed. So imagine Jesus. He announced his betrayal, flew right over the heads of his disciples. If you read the Gospels, that is not unusual. Things were flying over their heads all the time. And yet Jesus went through this all by himself. He went through this alone. You can imagine John, he's looking back on this moment and he's thinking, wow. Jesus met his betrayal. He walked right into it. He took that knife and he just went like that. And he met it with love, with compassion, where we would have met it with revenge and spite. And he met it all alone. Nobody knew. Nobody knew. When I think about how the disciple John looks back on this moment some 50 years later, and I wonder, did John feel any regret, any regret? Did he wonder, could I have said something? Could I have done something? Could I have just grabbed the hand of Judas right at that moment? But what's interesting is John looks back on this moment. He doesn't look back on it with regret. He looks back on this moment with awe and wonder. Who is this man we were walking with? This man who would walk willingly into betrayal. What kind of love is this that would face betrayal face to face and still love? What kind of man would go about this alone? Who is this man who would do this for me? And John's response is one of worship. This is the one we've been waiting for. This is the Christ. This is the Son of God. This is our beautiful, beautiful Savior. John responds in worship. And he tells the story again because he's inviting us to do the same. You see, we don't just retell this story. We don't just recreate it or recount it or remember it. We re-experience it over and over and over again at the Lord's table when we take communion. And when we take the bread 
we remember this was the same bread that was offered to Judas. The same bread that was offered as a gesture of love and honor and friendship. And we remember the blood that was promised that we could be so close to Jesus that we would have a place at the table. But we would be so close, closer than even John was to Jesus, we would be one with him. And so as we come to the Lord's table, may we not just relive, may we re-experience, and may we respond with worship. You see, Judas, he took the bread, and yet he walked away. If you take the bread this morning, you are saying, yes, Jesus, I take your love. I receive your life. I receive your promise. I receive my place at the table. But don't take this lightly, okay, from this message I want every time we take communion to remember that when we take the bread and the cup, we remember the love that came in the midst of betrayal. That's what was so beautiful. Because that love shone so bright in the midst of darkness. And so come, come, relive, re-experience and respond in worship. Here's love. Love that met betrayal face to face and shone all the more brighter. Jesus, our beautiful Lord and Savior, our God and King forever. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for this morning where we can just pause and look at your person and realize what a beautiful Savior we have. What an amazing love that's offered to us. Love that walked into betrayal and love still all the more. Love that met betrayal alone. And so I pray that you would bless now the ministry that takes place at your table, Jesus. Help us not just to remember, help us to relive, help us to respond in worship. And help us to bow our lives down to the one who laid down his life for us. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.